my kids, my kids think I had the email from Lifetime Image looking for a picture. Oh no, it's called a mug. Yeah, my well, <laughs> my kids just think it's like the funniest thing ever. <laughs> absolutely, like who would who would buy that? And I'm like, well, you know, they say that politics is so good for ugly people. Could be Hello and welcome to the Lib Dem podcast. My name is John Potter and with me today we have one of the new MPs elected in December. Uh, this is uh, Wendy Chamberlain. How are you doing, Wendy? Thank you for coming on. Thanks, John. Nice to be here. Well, so you've had a, obviously an incredibly busy few weeks, I imagine, adjusting to being an MP while dealing with Christmas and leaving the EU. So um, are, are you completely exhausted all the time or how are you managing things at the moment? Well, it's funny, there was no doubt that come the the culmination of the election campaign, or, or certainly that Friday the 13th, um, I was pretty knackered. But in other ways, it's kind of a bit funny because um, I was selected as the candidate for this seat um, 18 months ago, in fact, more than that. And in that time, I was working full time plus being the candidate. Yeah. So in some ways, the campaign was slightly easier in that I had taken a career break from my job. And it meant that I saw my kids in the morning before I left to, to head to the constituency office and things like that. So, But there was no doubt that by the Friday the 13th, um, you know, we were all emotionally and physically uh, knackered. <laughs> and just to let listeners know, we are recording this on Friday the 31st, which is Brexit Day. So whereas the, the, the episode will go live probably over the weekend, but obviously today is a very sad and solemn day and it, it, I mean what's going through your mind at the moment? Well I've just tweeted I found in my purse this morning um, a Paddington 50 pence thank goodness it was that one and not one of the other ones that seemed long to do and I just kind of tweeted and I think that does really sum up how I feel that you know that's the vision of the experience that Paddington has is the vision of, of the UK that, that, that I imagine or, or, or hope for that whole inclusive opening, welcoming aspect. So, yeah, it feels incredibly sad and it feels just such a huge act of, of, of self-harm. And, um, you know, obviously I am a Scottish MP and um, so there is that aspect of what's happening here, what impact does that have on the future of the UK? And um, it's easy to make a, I, I certainly can make a, a head argument for, for Scotland remaining in the UK all day. But this act and, and what's happening here does make it more difficult to make a heart one, no doubt about it. And just for any listeners that don't know, you're the MP for North East Fife. You were the first ever female MP for North East Fife. Um, and we'll go. We'll talk a little bit um, about how that campaign was, because for again, those that don't know, North East Fife was the most marginal seat in the country after the 2017 election by only... Losing, we lost by just two votes, or failed to win it back by two votes. So, I mean, that must have been. I mean, normally there's kind of an expectation of what you can and can't do in a campaign, but you guys must have been basically for for four years, well, for two years, beg your pardon, just non-stop campaigning. It must not have ended. Yeah, I mean, so I did listen back to some of the podcasts to to 
get me caught up and, and prepared for today. And I think Richard Kemp and sort of I think it was the third one about the general election had said that I was clearly no chicken because I had resilience after yes. coming back from seventeen. That's right. But I have to point out I wasn't actually the candidate in two thousand and seventeen. Because you were in Sterling at that point, weren't you? Well, though I was involved in in the campaign. So, um, yeah. Absolutely. It was always, and I think given the fact that after the 17 election, it was a minority government, you know, certainly the impression I'm getting from my, my colleagues who were in the last parliament was that, you know, it did feel very precarious from early doors. So to have only a two vote margin to overcome, I think one, that's the reason why, um, you know, I was selected as early as I was in many ways. It meant that we had clearly the best bar chart ever <laughs> and therefore yeah. it made, it made our squeeze message you know very strong you know that you're in a good place when you're knocking on doors and you're getting your message back to you before you even open your mouth yeah and did you find i mean i, I i'm not exactly sure but were you the only gain against the smp the whole night i think yes. that's correct so yeah. We the, yeah so we were the only the only gain against the, the smp and in all honesty, it was, you know, we had a lot of media focused during the campaign. A lot of people, I mean, we even had PBS and CNN at one point. Mm. So, you know, the learning curve for me was, was was pretty high. But there's no doubt that for all that in, on any other night, it would have been a story. You know, the, the, unfortunately, in gaining North East Fife, we also lost Eastern Martinshire and Joe so very much. And, you know, my win was was overshadowed by that, and, and rightly so. Have you have I mean, I'm sure listeners are interested. Have you spoken to Joe since? Is she obviously because she's obviously fallen out of the media um, kind of highlights since that point? But is, is she doing well? Do do you speak to her at all? Yeah, so I I, I was I don't know Joe particularly well. Mm. So, but the week after the election, so the first week down in Westminster, she was at the event that was run for some of our larger donors. And, you know, the way she spoke, it was just very inspiring. You know, the fact that she was, was there at all. And I did see her at the Lib Dem HQ sort of Christmas party a couple of nights later. And then since then, we've been in touch a couple of times. And um, she's been hugely generous in terms of she's been giving me some support with um I've got a member of staff of hers coming to work for me because she's also linked to this constituency. And so that kind of thing has just been invaluable. So she's doing okay, but I think she's very rightly taking the time that she and her family needs. Yeah, because I know there'll be a clamour for for members uh, to know, oh, what's happening to people like Joe or Chuck Ramuna or Luciana Berger, who, but they they've got to recharge the batteries, and because there's not going to be a general election probably for another four years, so they've they've got to take the time they need to to recover from what's happened, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. I did see Luciana on Monday. I was at the Holocaust Memorial event at Central Hall and, and I'd, I'd never actually uh, spoken to her before. So um, she introduced herself and she's okay. But, uh, you know, obviously taking that time, she's obviously got a young family as well. And uh, yeah, it was it, it was it was hard to just not feel very, very sad. Yeah. Can, guess, I mean, you only joined the party in 2015, is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Crying at Nick Clegg on the telly. Oh, right. So that was that was. I mean, it, it it's an interesting because again, you've had a very steep rise from joining in twenty fifteen to being an MP. It must you must think, wow, where's my life gone in the last few years? Yeah, it's funny because 
as you can imagine, the sort of all the, the, the speculation around the leadership, a couple of sort of tricky journalists have asked me. And I've sort of said, you know, look, I joined the party in 2015 and I've won my first target seat campaign. You know, as an, I, I live them, I am counting my lucky stars. Yeah. I don't think I'm putting my luck any further at the moment. Thanks very much. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, there's uh, absolutely, I suppose one of the things to remember is we are a smaller party in Scotland, particularly when you look at the very large interesting membership we've had in other parts of the UK. Yeah. You know, our membership here is about 5,500. Um, but really, I have to thank my uh, work husband, as I affectionately call him, Willie Rennie, who <laughs> is the MSP for North East Fife. So the majority of his Scottish parliamentary constituency is part of uh, the North East Fife Westminster constituency. And he has, has had a big part to play in, I suppose, identifying me as somebody that, that would be interested in being a candidate and supporting me. He contacted me. North East Fife was an all women shortlist in 2017 and he phoned me and said, I think you should apply and I laughed and said, Oh, I'm not even not even approved and he said, Well, we've got this we've got this emergency approval day in two weeks' time. <laughs> so and at that point I thought, I'll go on the bus and I'll see how, how long I go until I get chucked off and decide whether it's something I want to do and, and that's how things develop from there. So yeah, I have uh, moved quickly, but I think it is a real credit to this party that maybe in comparison to others, you know, you can get those opportunities and, and progress quickly. And, and East Fife and North East Fife has got an incredible kind of liberal history to it. Obviously, yourself being the first woman MP there, but going right back to, you know, to Asquith, the, a liberal prime minister was, was based in East Fife as well. So it's an incredible history you've got to build on in that area. Absolutely. Now, and I think I said this in my maiden speech, you know, Asquith and I probably wouldn't agree necessarily on universal <laughs> suffrage, but there's no doubt that there's a real legacy here. In fact, um, Town of Ladybank is a good example that the train station right across the road is a Masonic uh, Hall that has a plaque to Asquith because basically he used to, you know, jump off the train, make a speech and, and get back on the train. And uh, I'm in Cooper today. Uh, that's where the sort of administrative centre of the constituency. And uh, I had attended during the celebrations of 100 Years of Women Getting the Vote. There was actually an, art, uh, an evening all about the suffragettes in East Fife. And, and I think basically he was kind of harried off a few go golf courses and things like that. So, yeah, a real liberal tradition with Asquith. But then really, you know, the person to sort of credit for the fact that this was a seat that was Liberal Democrat until 2015 is obviously Lynn Campbell, our former leader, mm. who was from 1987. And he is still held with a huge amount of protection within the constituency. And, and you, you, you've mentioned about uh, the, the type of constituency you've got. And obviously, golf is a huge because St Andrews is in your constituency. And I see you've just joined the all-parliamentary group on golf. Now... I, I have been I have married into a golfing family, so I've been forced to learn about the sport. Now, is this something you're passionate about, about the game of golf, or is it just because it is in your constituency and as a good MP you have to know what affects the issues in a, a major part of your constituency? So, yes, and Andrews is the home of golf, and as part of being the MP, you also become a member of the Board of Trustees of the Lynx Trust. Oh, right. which is the organisation that owns all the golf, runs all the public golf courses in St Andrews, which includes the old course. Mm. So that was sort of certainly part of it. But um, although I don't play golf myself, my father is a mad golfer. And in fact, when he, uh, when he retired, the only way for my mother to see him was to become secretary of their local course. So um, he's probably more excited about the Lynx Trust 
potentially than than my successful election. So yeah, I'm not a golfer, but and obviously part of it is driven by uh, St Andrews and the RNE being based in the constituency. But uh, it's not difficult for me to to show an interest. But it's not actually my my sport is shinty. And so, I had to uh, look up what that was. I had no clue what shinty was at all when I was doing my research on you. <laughs> So, yeah, so up until uh, November 2019, because I stood down um, because of the election campaign, I was the first female board member of the Kamanath Association, which is the governing body for Shinty. So Shinty is an amateur Gaelic sport, and, and probably the nearest equivalent is uh, hurling in Ireland. So we do have internationals between Scotland and Ireland on an annual basis. And then the other sort of credit for Shinty is, is the precursor of ice hockey, so when the Highland clearances took place, Scots emigrated over to Canada, played shinty on the ice, and that's where ice hockey came from. Ah. So there's about 4,000 people play it uh, in Scotland, but there are teams in down in Cornwall, that's where the English Shinty Association is based. Uh, there's a Californian Camanac as well, but um, I'm uh, most involved with Kyle's Athletic, which was a team my father played for in Argyll, and there's a team in Fife, although not in North East Fife, Aberdour, that my whole family are involved with, kids as well. Brilliant. Oh, wonderful. Well, there we go. Uh, of all the topics you think you're going to hear on the Lib Dem podcast, the uh, the history of Shinty probably wasn't on top of everyone's list. But, no, no. <laughs> um, but one thing one thing you are um, the spokesperson for for the Lib Dems is actually constitutional relations. Now, yes. this is very, it's very dear to the hearts of lots of Lib Dems, whether that's voting reform, the House of Lords, and all these issues that we have been banging the drum about for decades... Now, the problem we have is that how do we ever make those things happen? How do we make them sellable to the electorate? And is that is that your job now? Well, it's funny because obviously, you know, I remember having a chat with Christine Jardin about in the summertime and she said to me, you know, if you were elected, what portfolio would you like? And I obviously said, I want to be in a position where we have a big enough parliamentary party where a portfolio is the last thing that I have to consider. And you're right, constitutional reform is one of them. It's one of the five that I'm holding. So I've got Scotland, England, uh, sorry, Scotland, Northern Ireland, Wales, uh, or, or not England, as somebody said to me, constitutional political reform and uh, DFID. And, you know, one of the reasons why when I was having the conversation about taking on those portfolios that I was, inter- you know, was was happy to do them is because I am very conscious that they are very liberal democrat things and, and that lots of people have an interest in. In terms of that, yes, I suppose it is, but I think it's about I was at Federal Policy Committee just a couple of weeks into January to look at the constitutional uh, motion that has been put forward for conference in York. And I think the aspect is after a general election, there's always that sort of flurry of interest around the sort of unfairness in particular the first past the post, um, you know, voting system. But that that kind of fades away. And realistically, we have to, although we're passionate about Liberal Democrats, unless we can properly demonstrate how voter reform or electoral reform will have a positive impact on people's lives, you know, it's going to continue to be a sort of, you know, hobby subject for us. So that's where we are just now in that we are looking at what are the meaningful things that we can meaningfully achieve achieve in the term of this parliament that potentially can start us on that journey. And how are the parliamentary party actually doing? Are they? I mean, I generally get the feeling the Lib Dems have been left a little bit flat after the general election. We need to get back on that horse and get going again. But how are the parliamentary party doing? Um, 
all of that is, is very true. I think that's one of the reasons why, you know, I, I for one, I'm certainly happy with the decision and timescale making around the leadership. I think yeah. we do need to take a bit of time to to, to grow and, 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 you know, develop as a team, as a group. And um, there are a number of us that are new. Um, I think, you know, obviously, there's lots of people. I was part of a target seat WhatsApp group. There are lots of people that I am so sad are, are, are not in the parliamentary party alongside me. So I think there is that sort of very natural sort of grief curve to go through. But I think we are really starting to focus now on what will our key campaigns be. You, know, you look to previous MPs like Norman Lamb, for example, who became the absolute go-to person in the parliament mm. eh, with his work on mental health. So how can we shape our team to do likewise? What are those key issues that we can take forward on both a local and na national basis so that despite the fact there's only 11 of us, we can punch above our weight? Um, I have to ask because because uh, it's a question until the leadership is done. So have you now ruled yourself out of being leader? I know you've only been an MP for since December, but is that something you are you are thinking about or has it not even crossed your mind yet? I am happy to say that I have no intention of standing for leader. Although a friend, a couple of friends have put a fiver on me uh, and my odds were 80 to 1, so that caused great hilarity. <laughs> um, well, can, I, can we then now talk about Scot Scotland? And I was really yep. interested, when I was, because you stood in Stirling in, in 2017, and I was looking at the past, the past elections of Stirling, and it, it's kind of almost like a little microcosm of what's, of where Scotland's been, it was Labour, and then it went SNP, and then the Tory won it, and now the SNP have won it back again. So it's, it. I mean, where's Scottish politics at the moment? I mean, everything seems to be gearing up, obviously, for the elections uh, next year, and that will be a, a, almost a defining moment for Scotland. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the first things to remember is, you know, 2010, there were, you know, six SNP MPs, so, you know, it's very easy to think about this sort of, you know, this unstoppable yellow wave across Scotland. But the reality is that that, that isn't necessarily the, the case and, and waves, waves aside. I certainly think what we saw in the 2019 general election was some replication of the surge that came about in 2015. But there's no doubt the Scottish parliamentary elections next year, where Willie Rennie um, will be Stanford re-election, our current leader in Scotland as well, will be will be very key. And, you know, I think there's no doubt that one of the reasons for our success here in North East Fife, as well as the length of time that I was the candidate and clearly the work we put in on the ground prior to the short campaign, was the fact that even where ne maybe necessarily our Brexit message wasn't landing well, you know, our opposition to um, a further independence referendum at this time and the fact that we are a pro-UK party um, definitely resonated. With, I mean, I've, seen, I've, I've been going through your Facebook and Twitter um, feeds as well. And obviously, you did have a you, no, 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 yeah, nothing. This isn't this isn't going to be an awkward question, trust me. Um, so I saw you, you had a photo with the, the Scottish Fishermen's Federation. Um, now, obviously, fishing is a huge issue in terms of Brexit. Even if it isn't a massive issue economically across Britain, it's a very kind of um, uh, point, yeah, uh, and it seems to have got gets a lot of attention, but. What issues are you now expecting or preparing for as an MP with Brexit happening later tonight? 
Yeah, yeah. so fishing is definitely one of those. So uh, the East Newcastle Fife, the fishing communities around Amsterdam and Pitlin, so I do have part of the industry uh, here in the constituency. And I think there's so many I think part of the issue for me around Brexit is the fact that um, we know that the deal that Boris Johnson secured is a, is a weaker deal in our view than, than the one we had previously. But we're also not entirely clear where the government are going across a number of issues. You know, I look back to the, the Lord's Amendment that came back to the House um, last week, which were all voted down by the government. But you have people standing up to say that they did support child refugees. The Prime Minister and Prime Minister's question saying that he did um, you know, he was supportive of the Erasmus scheme and the answer being that they didn't believe the withdrawal agreement bill was the place to, to have those, those amendments. So I think there's just a real lack of clarity of what it looks like and it's quite clear that we're going to move towards the summer and um, where potentially that cliff edge of if we don't move forward for a transition deal raises its head. And, you know, I think one of the challenges potentially for the government this year is how do you get people to a place potentially of more alignment that might be anticipated when the reality starts to hit home. Yeah, that's right. And I, I also want to ask you a little bit, because your background, for those that don't know, you were a police officer for, for 12 years as well. And I mean, I mean, does that? I'm laughing, because, I'm laughing because just simply because it became a bit of a standing joke in my camp, my campaign team. You know, like, oh, um, right. I, like it was like I didn't know you were a police officer. I was like, yeah, I know, because we've never mentioned it. <laughs> <laughs> well, did you? Is that do you get um, that association with being a police officer? Is that kind of because obviously you you left the, the the force a while ago. Is that just because you don't get many female police officers going into politics? People seem to jump on that, oh, she was a police officer. Is that why the key question keeps on coming? Well, I think it's about the fact that, you know, we talk about the sort of backgrounds of our politicians and where they come from and what they've done. And I suppose one of the things that we did want to talk about was the fact that not only had I, you know, had real-life jobs, I had actually come into contact with some of the most uh, vulnerable in our society. Um, I worked as a police officer initially in Edinburgh in some of you know the most surprised uh, communities there out in Wester Hills, etc. So you know I had, and in fact, I, you know I've been saying going to my surgeries, I've had a couple already. That in some ways it's almost like being a police officer from the perspective of you would go to a call, you would sit down with a person, you'd take their details, you'd find out what the issue was, and then you would discuss well, what did they want to happen? And then realistically, what you could do. And in some ways, that's exactly what you're doing as an MP as well. So that aspect of managing expectations, but also about helping, as well as doing the police. I worked in military settlement for a couple of years as well, helping service leavers into employment. And that was incredibly rewarding. So I do feel that, you know, that aspect of helping people and wanting to make a difference is, is something that, you know, made me a, a sort of real life candidate and, and certainly, hopefully, something somebody people identified with. And do you think that? I mean, I've always had the belief that one of the problems in Parliament isn't just a kind of north-south issue, but it's also a kind of the backgrounds of where MPs come from. Uh, where we have, and no offence to someone like Alistair Carmichael, who was a lawyer, that actually there are an awful lot of lawyers in uh, in Westminster, or or MPs that have done nothing but politics. They're a friend of a friend who got them into politics, and now they're in a safe seat. But do you feel that's something that's lacking actually within the Lib, the Lib Dems generally, that we don't get enough candidates from backgrounds that aren't, you know, rich suburbs and, and that sort and, and very wealthy occupations? I, I, I do think, 
I do think we do have to consider how we potentially reach out beyond our sort of standard voter demographic. You know, when you look at our vote share amongst those sort of ABC category and CDE, you know, there's a very stark divide. So how do we start talking to those communities? And part of that is possibly about diversity. I mean, I think we are in a place where we're much more, although much, you know, smaller number than we'd like to be, and um, we are more diverse as, as, as a grouping. Mm. But it's interesting, I've, I've always kind of thought that we do have that aspect of we talk about the local, can, the local candidate. And potentially, does that maybe sometimes prevent us from encouraging kind of diversity that we need to have at all levels? Mm. I mean, I know it's difficult in comparison to the bigger parties where, you know, let's be frank, we haven't got any safety. Um, but, you know, have we potentially, are we missing a trick? Just because somebody is local doesn't mean that they can't be the best person to represent that community. So I think there's a bit, there's a bit of a discussion to, to have there. When we were first discussing about you coming on the podcast, you said you absolutely should do an interview with my campaign manager as well and how important yes. he was. So yes. for, from the from a successful candidate's point of view, how much is a, is a good campaign manager important to you? Yeah, so my campaign manager, Kevin Lang, um, Councillor in Edinburgh, um, ran Alex Paul Hamilton's successful campaign and came within a thousand votes himself of being elected in 2010 in Edinburgh, North and Leith. And I think what a camp, well, you know, we've talked about the fact that I am not a long-term member of this party. I have not been pounding the streets or knocking the doors, uh, as many of the listeners to this podcast will be. And, you know, I remember when I first spoke at conference, I think in uh, Autumn Conference Scotland in 2015, and as new members, we were getting, you know, lots of claps and everybody being lovely. And I actually apologised. <laughs> I said, you know, and thought, you know, you're all being lovely to me, but, you know, fr- frankly, I should have been here a darn sight earlier. Um, so, you know, thanks for everything you've done to date. But I think where the campaign manager comes in is the fact that a candidate can't do everything. What are the priority things that a candidate needs, needs to do? And I think what Kevin really brought to our campaign, because we've got a fantastic organiser, and Willie Benny, obviously, you know, he has been you know, down in Cornwall and other places and, and has a real reputation himself. In fact, we were trying to keep him at arm's length, you know, not <laughs> to get too involved because he likes to to stick his own in, but um, you know, it was around being quite ruthless in terms of the data. Yeah. Um, so we were we were we were very, very we targeted areas where we knew that there was soft stories because that was what happened in seventeen, that although we had been second in fifteen behind the SNP when the SNP experienced their search, in seventeen both the SNP and the Conservatives painted North East Fife as a contest between them. Mm. And we came through the middle and remained second. And so the conversation we were then having with those Conservative voters from 17 was, if you want to stop the SNP, it needs to be us. So we were ruthless in our areas because actually, when we look back in 17, in terms of the top 10 seats at ballot boxes where we'd lost, we'd actually lost to the Conservatives, not to the Liberal Democrats. So... And you look at it, and actually, other than the speaker's seat in Chorley, yeah. and obviously the Tories weren't standing there, we saw the biggest fall in Tory vote share in right. the whole of the UK. So and that shows that the operation worked. And we and we talk about, I mean, we just had a, a local exec meeting fairly recently where two of the members absolutely hate bar charts and absolutely hate the you know, two-horse race graphics and all that. 
but the squeeze works and you got a 10% increase in your vote and it's because and it, it's painful for Lib Dems nationally but on a local level that's it's a key element of us winning yeah yeah and I think so you know I've joked about the the bar chart. I think my, I will the health warning always with bar charts is use the most accurate and best data because otherwise you look you look foolish. Yeah. That was obviously easy for us to do, but you know the squeeze message came about not from the bar charts but from the knocking on doors and yeah. speaking to people and and doing and doing that hard graft and then using the data. I mean we're very fortunate to have many vans, so we should be exploiting the information that it gives us. But certainly what it showed was we put potentially effort into other some areas more than others. And we saw we saw the result accordingly. And that's why that, and I've heard you on the podcast talking about that whole pick award, win it mentality yeah. of building up rather than trying to, you know, do one leaflet across the whole constituency. You know, that we know what, what gives results. That's what Kickstarter and stuff tells people. So, you know, if we've got best practice, surely we should be utilising it. And, and and a really important thing about targeting as well is that some people say, oh, we don't have time to target. Well, we everyone realises whatever party you're in, whether you're in a, a hugely successful uh, parliamentary seat like yourself or a relatively small seat or even a black hole seat where you've seen very little work, being targeting particular voters to save you time and effort. So you know that if someone's never voted in 10 years because you've looked at Mark Register data, you could probably discount them from voting in this year's local elections, but it, it allows you to be strategic and use your assets to the best of their ability. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, we had been we had been canvassing pretty much from when I was elected, just using the knock and drop surveys. But come the short campaign, we when we were pulling up our list, we didn't um, talk to anybody who was showing up as strong SNP because why would we waste their time and hours? And yeah. um, we needed to speak, speak to the people that that we believe were persuadable and um, to get us over the line. And that's sadly what you have to do in terms of first past the post. I mean, I have a question that I've asked all the MEPs, and I'll ask you as well. If you were to enact one law tomorrow, you could change one thing. What would it be? <sighs> So I have been asked before if I like won the ballot and um, what I would think about. And I've previously spoken about participation in sports because clearly that's something I feel passionately about. Yeah. I also would love to like click my fingers and have all the potholes gone because <laughs> I think, then, you know, as count at, at all areas of government, we could we could concentrate on, on uh, more important things. Mm. But I do think that whole bit around... You know, Leila has been talking about it this week in terms of homelessness and the Vagrancy Act. I think housing is is a key issue, and I think we we sort of don't give it the attention that we should be. Yeah, lovely. Well, well, all I can say is thank you so much for coming on and spending your time. I know on on a very busy day and a very very busy time for you, but we really appreciate you. Um, we'll just get a shout out. Do go follow Wendy on all her um, social media. You're on Twitter at Wendy Chamb LD. Uh, you've also got a Facebook page. I'm not sure. Are you on Instagram? I haven't actually checked that. Yes, yes, with the same uh, strap line. So Wendy Chamb LD on Instagram as well. Brilliant. Well, all our listeners, please go for And we really appreciate you coming on. So enjoy Thanks. the rest of your day. Uh, and, and Thank you. I just want to say, I did hear you saying that you all didn't really know anything about me. So hopefully you know a bit more about me now. 
your rise to being where you are is actually inspirational for people like myself who, you know, maybe one day want to get into Parliament. It's it's really great to hear from you. And, and I think that comes about from, from being a Liberal Democrat and being part of a party that, uh, that, that, that has the principles that it has as well. Yeah. Thank a- you. Absolutely. Well, thank you so, so much. And, uh, and just have a good rest of your day. OK. Thanks, John. Thanks, everybody. Right. Bye-bye. Many thanks to Wendy Chamberlain there, our first MP to appear on the pod. We are doing a session with me and Richard Kent where we'll be talking about leading up to the local elections and a bit more about the news now that Brexit Day has happened. So like I said, this was recorded with Wendy on the day on Brexit Day uh, and obviously a, a very sad day for Lib Dems and pro-European internationalists that we, that we are. But we, we carry on, you know. I'm literally just about to put on my shoes and go out canvassing in one of our target wards you go do the same get out there keep fighting and uh, we'll see you next time